Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 88, Twilight of the Communes. Before our little detour to follow the life and travels of the great merchant and explorer Marco Polo, the War of the Sicilian Vespers had taken us to the peace of Caltabellotta in 1302, which determined a division between the island of Sicily and the rest of what was the Kingdom of Sicily, whose capital was now Naples. Indeed, in time this part of the kingdom, i.e. the southern part of the Italian peninsula, would come to be known as the Kingdom of Naples, while the island, the Kingdom of Sicily. We'll stick to those names which are less confusing. Although the Peace of Caltabellotta has taken us into the 14th century, we're not quite ready to say goodbye to the 13th century, because we need to check on the rest of the country to see what's going on. How are our lovely communes doing, for example? Let's take a little tour, starting on the top left with Piedmont. You could perhaps say that the river Ticino, which flows down from Switzerland into Italy, was a divider between two very different worlds. Indeed, while the rest of Italy, particularly in the north, cities and trade were booming, Piedmont seemed to be the only area of the peninsula immune to all that and happy to stick with the family-based feudal system. Listeners will remember that one of the acts of the Lombard League in the 12th century was to found the city of Alessandria to have a counterpoint to the imperial power in that area. It is in staying loyal to the empire that one of the main Piedmontese family, the Marquis of Monferrato, maintained their position. Along with them, other important families further in the past had been the Oberdenghi and, in this period, the Saluzzo, both of whom you can forget if you want, and then there were the Savoia, the House of Savoy, and you might want to stick a pin in that name. Today, the regional seat of Piedmont, Turin, is one of the most important cities in Italy. It is the home of the Fiat Car Company, of the Juventus Football Club, and one of the most important monuments, the Mole Antonelliana, has been chosen to be one of those on the Euro coins printed in Italy. It is on the two-cent coin. Frederick II's Castel del Monte is on the one-cent, the Colosseum on the five, Botticelli's Venus is on the ten, a sculpture by Boccioni is on the twenty, you will find the equestrian statue of Marcus Aurelius on the fifty, Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man on the one euro, and the head of Dante Alighieri on the two euro coin. Turin was the first capital in 1860 of a united kingdom of Italy, and you can feel the atmosphere of a European capital to this day. At the end of the 13th century, it was no more than a country backwater. South of Piedmont is Genova, which at the end of the 13th century 
was doing quite well, thank you very much. The city is blocked off from the rest of the country by a series of mountains, which meant that the Maritime Republic of Geneva could concentrate on being just that, a maritime republic. Indeed, the city does not appear very often in the list of the various leagues going around. We saw in the last episode on Marco Polo that Genova had put a check on the almost worldwide power of Venice and had set up quite a network of its own. One could only imagine what sort of empire the two republics could have set up if they had banded together instead of fighting it out for a century. Then again, perhaps unity would have meant less than the sum of its parts. Anyway, Genova had put Venice in check and before that, put an end to the aspirations of another maritime republic, that of Pisa. Indeed, the growing attrition between Genoa and Pisa, over Genoa being bottled up by Pisa's influence over the islands of Corsica and Sardinia, had turned hot with the Battle of Meloria in 1283, in which a Genoese fleet, commanded by Oberio Doria, had defeated a Pisan one commanded by a Venetian admiral from the prominent Morosini family. Pisa could have bounced back from this defeat had it not been for the fact that it also had to look over its shoulder to the internal parts of Tuscany, not having mountains to protect it, to the Guelph cities of Lucca and Florence. It was after the loss at Meloria that Pisa had to deal with the attack from the two cities using the ideological excuse that Pisa was a Ghibelline city. At first, the wind was taken out of the sails of the attackers when Pisa turned Guelph, as Count Ugolino della Gerardesca was elected Capitano del Popolo, Captain of the People, after having been a Podesta. He was an ex-Ghibelline turned Guelph. His story has tickled the fancies of writers and artists such as Dante, Chaucer, William Blake, Shelley and Seamus Heaney and I thought it would be interesting to do the next episode on him to take as an example of the politics of the late communal period in Italy. We can only use examples as telling the whole story of every city in every period would take probably hundreds of episodes. You would need a podcast on the history of Pisa, one on Florence, one on Genova, Venice and so on. We can only really aspire to paint the big picture. Maybe when it's all over, we can go back and do the single ones. Who knows? Anyway, for the moment, Pisa was temporarily safe until Count Ugolino was imprisoned by Archbishop Ruggiero degli Ubaldi, who imprisoned Ugolino with his children and grandchildren, throwing the key in the Arno River and leaving them to die of starvation. That sealed Pisa's doom, and it would no longer aspire to be a great maritime or territorial power. It closed itself up and concentrated on its university, which is one of the two or three most prestigious in Italy to this day. Oh, and they also got into making wonky towers. Having mentioned Florence, We'll look into the very violent internal division of that city in this period more when we finally get round to talking about Dante Alighieri. For the moment, let's be content with remembering that Florence was perhaps the most staunchly Guelph city, 
having had to elbow its way out of confinement by taking over the surrounding Ghibelline lords in their castles one by one, with their families sometimes moving into the city and becoming part of the politics there. Sadly, or happily if you can't stand it anymore, it's almost time to say goodbye to the whole Guelphs and Ghibellines business. Aside from one last attempt, coming up by a Holy Roman Emperor to dabble in Italian politics, this opposition won't be heard about much more, due to the almost definitive defeat of the Ghibelline faction. Charles of Anjou had delivered a mortal blow at the battles of Benevento against Manfredi, King of Sicily, and in Tagliacozzo against Corradino. The final nail on the coffin can be considered the Battle of Campaldino. This was a mostly Tuscan affair between Florence, Siena, Massa, Pistoia, Lucca, Prato on one side and Arezzo on the other. This may have seemed a bit one-sided, but Arezzo was supported by Ghibelline troops from all over Italy, and in the end, the armies on the field, although the Guelph was larger, were not hugely disproportionate, and the Arezzo cavalry were famed for its skill. Despite this fact, the Battle of Campaldino, which took place on the 11th of June 1289, saw a Guelph victory, and the destruction of the hopes of the Ghibellines. Continuing on our tour and heading south from Tuscany, we pass into Rome, where we pop into from time to time. We'll stop off quickly now, just to say that at the end of the 13th century, there wasn't much to brag about. It was still a large city for the time, with estimates going from 20 to 30,000 inhabitants, but you will grasp that it was quite a different place from the ancient imperial capital, which may have reached a population of one million. It was a place of poverty and malaria, and with the papacy about to head off to Avignon, it would not have an illustrious 14th century. The Sistine Reconstruction was far in the future. Continuing south, we head into the new kingdom of Naples, which was still called the Kingdom of Sicily, which we have spoken about and will again soon. Then Sicily the island, which was still the Kingdom of Sicily, and would stay that way without the mainland part for centuries. Back up to the right side of the boot through Puglia, still Kingdom of Naples, and back through the Papal States with cities doing better than Rome, and then back skirting Venice into the heartland of the north, and our old friends, the communes. Now, we have hailed our beloved communes as an anachronistic example of democracy in a time of lords, knights, kings and emperors. That is perhaps a bit too generous, since the little people, the plebs, the drown-trodden, the lowest on the social and economic rungs, those wallowing in the mud, never really had much of a say. But participation in politics was a lot more widespread than in the feudal system. However, already in the 13th century, something was starting to change. There had already been examples early on in the century of men concentrating power in their hands over one or more cities. In the northeast, for example, Ezzelino da Romano 
had managed to extend his influence over Verona, Vicenza, Padova and Treviso, and maintain this delicate balance till his downfall in 1259. Heading west, we could mention the example of Oberto Pelavicino, who managed to extend his influence over numerous cities, including Parma, Cremona, Piacenza, Alessandria, Pavia, Tortona, Brescia, and, partially, Milan. His downfall came when he was defeated in 1269 by Charles of Anjou. Don't feel guilty if you've already forgotten these names. The takeaway point is there were early examples of power being concentrated into the hands of single families before most communes actually transformed into what would be known as the Signoria, the dominions of the lords. In Milan, meanwhile, the Della Torre family managed to elbow their way to power only to be soon contrasted by the Visconti. In the end, it was the Visconti who won out thanks to the fact that one of them, Ottone Visconti, was Archbishop of Milan starting in the early 1260s and we have by now learned how important it is in a city to be Bishop or Archbishop. Once again, we could fill hours, not only with the history of Milan, but just with the struggle between the Della Torre and the Visconti. But the main takeaway point, once again, is that power was starting to concentrate in the hands of a single family, and said power becoming hereditary. Why was this happening to our lovely communes? Well, there are various reasons. First of all, the lack of order and stability. The continuous struggle for power was getting on everyone's nerves, even those involved in the actual struggle, which was most people. The fact that the lower levels of society weren't really involved anyway, as we said, so they had grown wise to the fact that, to them, it really didn't matter who was in charge anyway. Then there was the need to have an infrastructure both physical and administrative, to meet the growing complexity of production and trade. Stability and continuity are needed for the economy to prosper. Finally, there was the fact that there were no ghibellines to band against. This meant further fracturing. In Florence, for example, once the ghibellines were out of the picture, the Guelphs split into white and black Guelphs. So it was that as the 14th century came around, cities would start to have names of families associated with them. The Visconti in Milan, the Della Scala in Verona, the Da Camino family in Treviso, the Coleoni in Bergamo, the Este in Ferrara, who will cross destinies with the Borgia at a certain point, the Bonaccolsi in Mantova and Modena, the Correggio in Parma, the Malatesta in Rimini, and the Ordelaffi in Forlì. Now, obviously, I don't expect you to remember those, but I was actually thinking of doing, like, an online match-the-family-with-the-city-memory quiz game. I'll try and do that, see if it works out. In any case, what we need to remember was that as the sun was setting on the 13th century, so it was on the communes who have kept us company for so long.
Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters, my Matilde Di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Aaron W, Benjamin, Brett W, Eric R, Jeffrey, Lorenzo, Maddie, Mark L, Mattia, Monica T, Paul A, Sean G, Sean M, Scott, Thomas and YR, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony G, Silane, Chanel, David L, Dean V, Eric W, Gordon Z, Greg, Ignacio, Old John in Milwaukee, Caitlin, Kevin, Marxist-Leninist Sicilian, Patrizia Kappa, Peter W, Rene B, Roberta D, Rodney N, Rudy F, Scott L, Shelby and Stephen, and the tippy-top Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri, Sen, Paolo, Lisa K, JW, Andrew M, Brandon S, who are now joined by newcomer Maxime. Welcome aboard, and thank you very much, Maxime. And along with him, we also have newcomers Rudy F, David L, and Peter W. Thank you, thank you, one and all, for your support. If you are so inclined, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com with comments, questions, philosophical doubts, and so on. The same URL www.ahistoryofitaly.com You can click through to our social media. We are on Twitter and Facebook and also possibly contemplating entering into the magical world of Instagram. Who knows? We may get around to that as well. You can click through to maps and timelines and if you are feeling generous you can go over to the support page and support us on PayPal or become a patron on Patreon to access extra content. Once again, thanks to everyone very much for listening. And until next time, arrivederci. Sentire media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.